Options activity has altered the investment landscape. Get an edge on this massive flow of funds with Tier 1 Alpha's Market Situation Report brought to you by Hedgeye. A daily newsletter of the latest moves in the options market and a weekly webcast featuring myself, Mike Green of Simplify Asset Management, and Tier 1 Alpha's Craig Peterson and David Pegler. Go to hedgeye.com research for more information. Thanks for listening to the Hedgeye Investing Summit, featuring conversations with some of the sharpest minds in investing. To get access to the other eight Hedgeye Investing Summit conversations and for more great investing content, go to hedgeye.com. I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome to our latest investing summit. This is our 11th summit. I can't believe it's uh, been that many years and been so many real conversations. We're going to look forward to that for the next uh, three days. We're going to do three in a row for three straight days, and we're going to start today with our leadoff hitter. I like to go with her first because she's one of, not only one of the best strategists on Wall Street, but one of the, the one of the real uh, favorite human beings I have in 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 my uh, in my investing summit life. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You're too kind. Well, uh, welcome, Lizanne. Thanks for leading off again today. My pleasure. Looking forward to it. I always love our conversations. They uh, they fly in uh, in time, and that's testament to to you. And congrats on uh, the eleventh. Well, thank you. It's it's my old college hockey number. I love number eleven. My, there you my, go. We were just talking about my eight year old. She wears number eleven. So well, don't don't stop at eleven. Keep going with these. <laughs> we'll keep going. Um, I, I generally start with you going through, and, and why we get along is because we have. You know, not a dissimilar process. We have a similar approach. We have similar uh, experience in the game, and I think that uniquely we've we've evolved. Uh, you know what we've done, and I, I think you die if you don't. So um, generally, I like to start with the rates of change on both growth and inflation. With you uh, this year, we're going to do rates of change, obviously on on the deficit and the debt. But first, I want to start with the market signals. I mean. According to me, at least, and, and the market, uh, you know, the signals front run the economic outlook, and that's a real important thing. But I, I do struggle from time to time um, in terms of trying to interpret, you know, this U.S. stock market relative to a coagulation of other market signals, which are quite different uh, for one, um, but uniquely American, I call it, and, and I dare call it uniquely American FOMO uh, in isolation. Uh, on the U.S. breadth, let's just maybe start with that. I know you've done a lot of work on that, and just you know, tell me what you see. So you're you're right. This has been, and by the way, similar amount of experience. I think I'm a lot older than you. I think I sit somewhere on the spectrum between maybe you and Byron Wien, but I won't say more about that. But I've, And nobody I've, believes I've seen, you. Uh, I've we... seen my share of market cycles being in this business since uh, since 86. And, you know, there, there's so much that is unique about this cycle for, for so many reasons, uh, probably most notably just the, the vagaries of the pandemic, both on the, the market-related side of things and the economy-related side of things. You know, we're, we're, we're just about to, I guess, celebrate, depending on who you are as an investor, the one-year anniversary off the low of, in the case of the S&P, October 12th last year. And, you know, it's been a fairly anemic uh, move relative to if you go back in the modern era history of the S&P 500 back to the late 50s when it became the you know a group of 500 stocks the the average move a year off of a major low has been a little more than 40% and we're less than 20% now but it's not just the the anemic nature of the move but the concentration issue which really kicked in in earnest in the may june period of time where you not only had such a massive bias in performance by the 
you know, Magnificent Seven, you also had in mid to late May a record low percentage of S&P stocks that were outperforming the index overall over the prior 60-day period of time. That's improved a little bit recently, but it has uh, rolled over in terms of the traditional breast statistics. I think, you know, Friday was, I guess, a little bit of a washout, and I think just the washout in breadth where you were sub 10% in terms of percent, whether it's NASDAQ, Russell 2000, S&P, above 50-day moving average, that and the fact that the S&P sort of held at its 200-day moving average with going through it, I think probably brought some uh, dip buyers uh, in. And I'm, I'm talking to more people who are sort of looking at breath signals, you know, with a technical uh, mindset, whether that's a, a good long-term strategy. But what's not really happening right now is what was happening last October. One of the reasons why that low, at least for a period of time, looked fairly decent was even though the indexes were taking out the prior June low, breadth had actually started to improve before the indexes took out their lows. So, you know, positive divergence to use the the language. And I, I think that held for, for a while. And then we started to see that concentration problem, which in and of itself is not a problem, but when you have such a small percentage of stocks doing anything well relative to the index, I think that was one of the setups for the weakness that kicked in in late July, not to mention the surge in yields, which is the story. Yeah, that we'll get into that next. The, you know, if you look, obviously, if the Russell 2000 is down 28 percent from where the cycle peaked, I mean, stuff like crypto, some of it's obviously, unfortunately, uh, gone away. But you have that, you know, Bitcoin itself down 65. I mean, we have some epic drawdowns, but the concentration remains. Ninety percent of the S&P's return is in seven stocks. And it's like I've never seen that before. I mean, I, nobody's ever seen that before. So but what we have yeah, what else we haven't seen before a year off a low is dramatic underperformance by the banks. Um, In every case in the past, going again, going back to 57, you've had double digit strong performance. And in most cases, banks doing better than the S&P overall, not always, but in most cases. And now we're still in negative territory a year in another distinct difference relative to past uh, one year off lows periods. Yep. It's, it's, it's also like really interesting if I'm old enough to remember. Yeah. And, and I was not uh, here for the 1991 recession. Uh, my first one was coming out of the 1999 one. I still don't believe you that you're older than me and nobody else does either. So there Way. you go. Uh, <laughs> but the, I'm you know, a boomer. <laughs> you know, when we look at this and when I look at this relative to anything else. I mean, people will quickly, the old wall technical chart type that has like a moving average in one talking point, which is presidential cycle or seasonality. That's not what you and I do. I mean, I do make fun of it because it's funny. I mean, we live in a multi-factor world with multiple factors. Uh, You've been very good at analyzing, you know, what factors you'd like to be long in certain environments. And that, like, we always try to remind people that, like, seasonality, what if you're getting long seasonality into October of 1987 when Liz Ann Saunders was just fresh on the job. I mean, that was not a good idea. Not only that, but I, I think there's there's always um, approaches that get turned on their head. And I think another example of, of this unique period of time is that the the Magnificent Seven, to some degree, are this cycle's defensive stocks. Um, yep. I think this year they became defensive in part because of the the mini banking crisis or whatever we're calling it now, I guess Jamie Dimon is using the words you know banking incident, but that was really when the concentration problem kicked in yeah. to higher gear, and I think because those stocks represented 
big liquid, strong balance sheet, high interest coverage kind of stocks, they became defensive again. It's similar to the fact that they were the defensive stocks during the lockdown phase of the pandemic because they represented at that time the the eco the only ecosystems in which we were all living absent a normal uh, cycle and it just shows you that the word defensive is a descriptor it's not some predetermined grouping of stocks just like and this brings up the whole growth versus value debate that drives me crazy because in the case of the value indexes um, it's easy to screen for whether you're a growth stock or not and and know whether you're not a growth stock. And if you're not, then you get thrown in the value indexes. That doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean you often offer value. Utilities, part of the reason why they've underperformed, even though they're classically defensive, is they were more expensive relative to the S&P at some point last year than ever. That doesn't make them value stocks. It just makes them expensive stocks right. that happen to live in the value indexes because they don't belong in the growth indexes. So there, there's so many ways to think about the the labels that I think there's too much simplicity that's often applied to it, things like defensive or growth and, and value or even momentum. I think people think momentum automatically means, you know, tech stocks and yeah. momentum just means that that's a factor that continues to work. Um, mm-hmm. It can be in, you know, energy stocks. It doesn't have to be tech. Well, it did. I mean, what's interesting about momentum, and let's knock some of those pins down, momentum as a factor exposure, defining, you know, what these, uh, I call them the MM7 or magnificently manipulated seven stocks, which I think uh, is largely a function of liquidity, which I want to come back to. But but, but back on momentum, again, I'm old enough to remember last week. I mean, at the lows of last week, when we're at the low end of my risk range, which is a typical place for you to bounce, not off the 200-day moving monkey, you know, you had 6% of the S&P 500, 6% of the stocks had positive one-month price momentum. That is like pretty near the alt. It's definitely a decade low, uh, but it's certainly a low relative to the game that I entered as a hedge fund analyst and then a PM where quite literally my process is re-engineered to front-run switches in one-month price momentum, which is called my immediate-term trade duration, which is three weeks or less. But when you look at that, I mean, that that is a squirrel. I mean, that that is telling you, Okay, some bad shit is happening, uh, or you wouldn't have 94% of stocks scoring right. that way. And then the alternative, isn't it, like, let's just use both of those. I mean, we have momentum defined. Okay, it got a little better after two days on the second worst volume day, by the way, yesterday of the year. Um, but, okay, got a little better, but it's still bad on my scorecard. Isn't it liquidity that people are owning with those seven stocks? Not some, you know, like you said, like some something that you want to label. But what it really is is a place, if you're selling a 60-40 bond portfolio, it completely blew up. Or you can't buy utilities. You can't buy staples. You can't buy anything that is defensive in the traditional uh, definition. You just got to flow $100 million or $100 billion in some cases out of bonds into those seven stocks. That's yeah, and, and absolutely. And that is, you know, we talk about the cat bias. I think you're right. It's more of a liquidity bias. They're they're sort of one and the same with with that type of grouping of stocks. And, you know, there, there are plenty of environments in the past when you're looking at cap weighted indexes where the large cap stocks dominate performance. Yeah. It's when the other stocks are so significantly underperforming that that divergence 
is when the risk kicks in, not just because you've got some of the larger stocks driving performance. That's the nature of cap weighted indexes. Yep. But it, it was, you know, your your, you know, 30 day momentum type stuff, the, the analysis I've done on the percentage of the index outperforming over the prior 60 days. You know, you can look at that in a number of ways, but that was the the setup, I think, for some of the, the risk that has unfolded, notwithstanding the last couple of days of better action. Now, because liquidity is a thing, right? I mean, when you're running trillions of dollars on a neutral basis, and you can't be neutral to the factors that we talked about, you can't be long. I mean, anything, pretty much. I mean, if you look at factor exposures since uh, August 1st, I mean, high debt, you know, uh, look at anything like a high EV to EBITDA ratio in the S&P 500, high short interest, high beta, you know. To your point, these seven stocks have become relatively lower beta because they don't go down as much. Right. Um, but, but these are factors that traditionally, let's bring it back to 1987. Lizanne Saunders is sitting there and bond yields are rising and financials are underperforming while bond yields are rising. There's only one real time that I can go back looking at all cycles because it certainly wasn't during the Greenspan, entering the Greenspan recession or the Bernanke one, you had falling bond yields. You know, so can you, can you go back to that and t- let's get it, start to get into the fundamental here where like rising bond yields, maybe the market's just telling you it's not just rising bond yields, it's, it's an economy that can't handle rising bond yields. Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of Sector Pro investing research products. Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between with exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actual ideas on Wall Street. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Well, it's it's also the the speed of the rise in bond yields. Right. Um, here's where I think speed matters more than level. I don't think it's really the case that the market or the economy can't handle 4.8 on a 10-year. It's the, the speed of that move. Yes. And the fact that as the yield curve started to steepen, it happened via a bear steepener, not a bull steepener. And that is what makes this spike in yields quite unique because the last, I don't know, three or four steepenings, which in and of itself tell you that recession risk is is still prevalent. It's the steepening off of a deep inversion that's the recession signal, not the inversion it, itself. But the fact that it's come with a bear steepener, meaning you know long-term yields going up, bond prices coming down, it, it brings back what was being discussed in 1987 too, sort of the speed is something going to break, which brings you back to that desire for liquidity as we wait to see, you know, what or if the thing or, or the things are that uh, break. And I, I think that that's all part of the story around the demand for quality and liquidity. Yeah, this and, and, and what about speed in bond yield terms weaponized by speed in the equity markets option structure? And we have on on a on any given day now it's north of fifty percent of total uh, U.S. options that trade settle in you know one to two days. And right. that that is speed max speed max leverage. There's no anybody who's tried to run money with a, an options book knows that that is one one very good way to either have all your hair go white or lose it uh, and then lose a lot of money. Um, what do you think about that nature and how the, the nature of that structural implement into the game is is not only being instructed by bond yields on, on some days now, but, but also becoming something that, that the world's really never seen since portfolio insurance, maybe. 
Um, I agree. And it's not just in play in things like the options market, the speed of the information flow, the, the you know, things like a bank run happening at Twitter speed or, or X speed, uh, the fact that decisions can be made, whether it's trading decisions or bank withdrawal decisions can be made with, you know, the, the click of a finger on a smartphone has completely changed the, the game. And I think there's the natural reaction on the part of many investors and traders is to similarly shorten time horizons as as someone that's a believer in long-term investing especially for our group of investors our little you know eight trillion dollars worth of of clients (laughs) are individual investors that for the most part probably don't serve themselves well consistently over the long term by trying to play that ultra ultra you know microsecond short term uh, game especially in the options market where i think there's a disconnect between the the probably the necessary knowledge base uh in trading options uh, which by the way i don't have i will never forget um i had to i found out i had to take the series seven sort of many many years into uh my career and i decided to do the the fast track studying over the course of four days and then take it on the following monday and uh just the the little tricks the the person who helped me put the study materials together about options and i thought this is the kind of stuff that i'm going to pound into my head regurgitate it onto the series seven screen where it will stay for the rest of time. And uh, <laughs> that's exactly what has uh, happened. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's a thing, right? I mean, and, and I talk to, just like you, I mean, I speak to, I mean, our client bases are different. I mean, but they're the same in some senses. I mean, we, I have a lot of crossover to the, to, the, to the RAA or the high net worth or the self-direct investor. But I also, you can, I could talk to when he was back in the game institutionally, like Stan Druckenmiller in his office. Like it's, it's a, you get to talk a lot. And what you find is that you're not alone, right? Especially if you're a boomer, Gen X, who's run money and or been at the switch accountable to an opinion like we've been uh, or both. I mean, it's just, it's not easy. I mean, because this, the structure of the game has changed so quickly. Yep. But so has the thing that may be making bond yields go up at a fast rate. I know Jim Bianco, who I'll talk to next, has some explicit thoughts on this. But the pace of government spending and the pace of the deficit and the pace of the debt increase is now at, like, light speed. Can we go to that? I know you've uh, you've done a a fair amount of work on it. And I'll show a couple slides quickly so people can get, you know, their their hands around, like, what's actually happened here. So, guys, if you go to, to the first slide on what we call the big G or the deficit and debt part of the presentation that shows the 32 trillion going to the next slide, which is 33 trillion in debt. And like we're talking adding you know, 250 billion in a weekend uh, at this point. Um, so I tried to contextualize that, like what is that in $100 bill terms? So, but of course people, human beings, as you well know, Lizanne, because you speak to plenty of them and, and you're, you're, you're in the mix, so to speak, they, 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 they see that but they don't know how to model that or measure and map that. But if you show on the next slide, slide 110, the rate of change of government spending was clearly the hero this year. I mean, whether it be through the actual GDP numbers themselves, which, you know, this is a massive rate of change rip, uh, or, or the impact, I think, now on bond yields and certainly on the sustainability of the labor market because a lot of the government spending has been equated to, to government hires. So I said what I wanted to say about that just as an opening volley. Um, what do, you, what do you think about that when you see the rate of change of debt accelerating into an economic, or would that be a sign of an economic slowdown or the sign of the next expansion? 
Well, we've had, you know, sort of ever rising burden of, of debt. Um, it, it's It's been going up somewhat exponentially since the early 1980s. We were just in the era of great moderation where we were in disinflation nearly the entire time and long-term interest rates coming down. So the cost of servicing yes. the debt was quite low and therefore it didn't rise uh, up in the attention of, of, you know, constituents or policymakers. Interestingly, I can't remember the last time, this goes back years, that I didn't get questions at client events, at other um, meetings that I would have with some <laughs> of our investors about, you know, when are we going to hit the wall? When, when is this finally going to come home to roost? The question would be asked in different ways. But my answer was always maybe the markets that sort of bring this more to the, the fore. And in our 2023 outlook that we put out at the end of last year, um, very wrong on I thought the equal weight outperformance would have more legs. That clearly was not the case. But one of our, our key impressions heading into 2023 that concerns about debt and deficit and financing it would be become a much larger part of the, the conversation. I think the fact that we re, that, you know just this year hit that servicing costs at 14% of tax revenues. If you look in the past when we've hit that, that's usually when sort of the, the concerns, the rioting starts, and it may be the, you know, bond vigilantes, for lack of a better term, that are now forcing this out of the darkness and into the light. And it's part and parcel of the move up in yields being mostly about the term premium, not a huge surge in inflation expectations or some change perspective on the growth trajectory. It's the, you know, compensation being demanded and it has to do with a lot more supply coming on and less demand on the part of foreign central banks and other foreigners. And and maybe you know individuals here just saying you got to give me you got to give me more yield um, for me to take the risk of of going out the uh, the duration spectrum and part of that story is is definitely um, the this deficit problem. Yeah, you've seen the I mean, and then people go down the rabbit hole on what the Chinese have sold, what the Japanese have sold. But I mean, they've taken a material cut to their you know to their percentage of ownership on in the treasury market. That's all happened, but. What hasn't happened is an arrest of the what we call the conditional or causal factors that are making this happen. And it's, um, last I checked, I mean, government spending is inflationary, is it, is it not? Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Agile. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis, our favorite stock ideas, and our risk manager-in-chief, Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of 40-plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends, and our high-conviction, long-and-short investing ideas. You will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. A video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from the call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe and tune in live to the call weekdays at 7.45 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Um, it depends on what form of government spending. Um, but I, I, you know, it's hard to, to sort of pinpoint what sat behind this inflation surge uh, to one thing. I think it's obviously a combination of, of forces, but I think concerns about lack of fiscal discipline, um, I think is absolutely part of that story, especially uh, recently. And that's why 
as you continue to see disinflation here, you've now got this massive surge in, in bond yields and mm -hmm. it's it's got ripple effects. The other concern here is that the you know, the something that breaks, we, we are seeing arguably a bit less interest rate sensitivity in segments of the economy like the mortgage market because of so much more of a bias toward fixed rate financing there a lot of the healthier companies termed out debt government didn't do anything that they probably should have with regard to you know extending duration i do worry about the shadow banking system and how much lending has been done there and that's where there's opacity and and i mean it's always hard to know what the thing is that breaks when you have a spike like this in, in yields in 87 it in part was due to portfolio insurance but uh i do have concerns about the the shadow banking system because we just don't know enough about it to to judge whether you know cracks are, are really starting to starting to widen yeah that's where the real non-linearity fun starts the um and ends abruptly by the way as you well know i mean it's it's just like high yield spreads i mean Right. You're like, oh, look, they look they're benign. They're contained until they're not. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and then we just have a whipper, you know, a ripper right. of a three-week move in high-yield OAS spread. And it's, it's like we can talk about that, which maybe we should. But, you know, when people say you use the word disinflation. Now, consensus will look backwards 100% of the time and have missed both, right? Like they didn't nail inflation going from two to four to nine. And then at nine, they're sure that you had an inflation problem. Then they completely miss disinflation, what we call quad four and or quad one, just the rates of change coming down. Guys, can you show that on slide 20? I mean, the quarterly peak was 8.63. But you know, you did in June, you had Wall Street essentially declare victory uh, from both a bond market uh, and a yield perspective, and really equities in July, I'd argue, you know, with this kind of like, you know, this Goldilocks scenario where you remember June, the, the headline inflation print was actually below three. Now we have it going back towards three, six, you know, three, six, five percent. So that's a reacceleration in inflation. I, that's not a decel anymore. That's a reacceleration. Re um, what do you think about that? Because we just addressed, okay, bond yields could be going up through sovereign credit risk. You know, bond yields could be going up because we're going to get one more good GDP number. You know, bond yields could be going up because inflation's reaccelerating, or what I say, all three are all of the above. <laughs> but what do you think about this recent reacceleration? And in context, is that enough for the Fed to give Wall Street what they really want, which is a rate cut? Well, um, I think we're we're in a more sort of volatile period for inflation. And I want to get to my longer term perspective on that because I think it's a it's a topic that's not being uh, discussed enough. But to the specific question about is it enough? for a pivot, not just a pause. Um, no, that that's the narrative that has befuddled me for quite some time. This idea that just because we're, we're in, albeit choppy, disinflation mode, that that's <laughs> enough to give the Fed a green light to cut at, with, with inflation still above their target, um, still tightness in the labor market as they measure it without any kind of significant dent in the economy how how could that possibly be a green light for a, an actual pivot to rate cuts after the most aggressive hiking cycle in 40 years and that's what i you know i think powell has been trying to emphasize the for longer part of higher for longer and i don't think it's out of the question that the fed might be cutting next year but not not under the current set of circumstances uh you know a, a fed that moves to rate cuts next year would to me, only happen through a combination of continued disinflation to or near their target 
and more than just cracks in the labor market, bringing their their other mandate into clear focus, which is they view as a weaker labor market being a necessary condition to keep right. inflation uh, down. And the current set of circumstances, even if you you know can support a pause, which they could be in pause mode, pause and a pivot are two entirely different things. And the fact that the move to a pivot is often part of the bullish narrative. I always think, boy, be careful what you wish for if the Fed is going to have to do a 180 and, and start to, to cut, you know, in the first half of next year. Well, what's perverse about that is what just happened. I mean, you know, I, I say Powell lied about it. Um, people get all triggered because I said he lied. I mean, where I'm from in Thunder Bay, Ontario, if somebody says they're going to do something based on a couple things you're watching, like the next couple inflation reports or labor reports, then you should probably do what you said you're going to do. And he didn't. He did not raise rates. And clearly, you and I can get into the weeds on, on the labor market data and what's where the cracks are. But that headline NFP was a two bagger over what what a, an old wall economist or the a Fed one, which is kind of like a lesser paid one, would have, have looked for. And and we're going to get this week, Thursday, I think, another acceleration in inflation. So he didn't go for the rate hike, but the bond market said, I'm going to raise rates for you. That's right. and, 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 and that's what I wanted to ask you about next. I mean, here we have yesterday. Again, it's all part of the narrative. They need their cowbell back. You know it, Lizanne. That's and it surprised you. It surprised me. It surprised Daniel DiMartino Booth. I guess I'm the only guy that's surprised. I mean, all the Wall Street guys, you know, are oh, this has got to go the other way though, because I think they need it. They want it and they need it, but they're not getting it. So what 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 do you think about that? It's been a long time since the bond market said, oh, you don't want to do that. I'm going to take oil up 40 percent in your face and raise interest rates for you, even though you didn't give the rate hike you said you were gonna give. Which um, I, I just did um, Wall Street Week on uh, Bloomberg with David Weston on Friday with uh, David Bianco. And we were oh, both did. sort of in agreement that I- Well, there's another guy who agrees. <laughs> that, you know, just wonders whether the, the, one of the ways to arrest the rise in bond yields may actually be a more hawkish stance on the part yeah. of the the fed so that they you know they they take the reins back to some degree so far you're not really hearing that the comments you are getting from you know federal open mouth committee is that the you know the the move up in bond yields is doing some of the tightening for the fed and that's a reason why they can kind of back off but what what i think is is more important than just the you know, the obsession that everybody has over the CME FedWatch tool and what percentage probability is built into Fed Funds future for the next meeting and maybe the December meeting. I think we are in um, transitioning into already in um, just a, an entirely different secular environment than the so-called great moderation. And the great moderation, depending on who's using the term and what, what relationships or what metrics are looking at, some cite that period is going all the way back to the early 80s in the post, you know, Volcker, Slazy inflation dragon, early 80s through pandemic of disinflation the entire time and rates coming down. Others like myself think of it more as the kind of mid 90s up until the pandemic. And the period that preceded that, call it the 30 years starting in the mid 60s, I've been calling the temperamental era, just looked a heck of a lot different mm -hmm. from the great moderation. And the great moderation had lots of, of themes and, and, you know, reasons behind why we saw what we did, one of which was 
everything gel, G-E-L at that time, that's the acronym I've been using, the world had cheap and abundant access to goods, energy, and labor. And all three of those ships have uh, sailed. And if you look at the, the 30 years that preceded the Great Moderation, we're starting to see some similarities. You've got the very significant inverse relationship between bond yields and stock prices. That was an era of not high inflation in perpetuity, but more inflation volatility. Mm -hmm. There was more geopolitical instability. Labor had labor compensation was a larger share of GDP relative to its history versus profits. That was not the case in the great moderation. Profits went to a record share of GDP relative to its history. Labor comp record low share relative to its history. Those are starting to converge now. Clearly, you're seeing the relationship bond yields and stock prices. You had more economic volatility, bigger swings. So you had more recessions, but you had stronger growth on the upside, some of which is because you didn't have the constraints associated with the high and ever rising burden of, of debt, which we already talked about. So I think that's a more important story. What does the secular environment look like? And it's not without opportunities for investors, but for a lot of investors, their investing lifespan only goes back to something within the great moderation era. And uh, I just think it's, it's, different this time, and that's not dangerous to say in this case. That is a, a tutorial, suffice to say. I mean, you got the gel in there and everything. I like it. Uh, there, when I started Hedge, I used to put the gel in the hair. It didn't work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I had, uh, I, actually, I will name it. Um, you, Jenison, I, 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 here I am. Like, I'm not like you, right? I was, I was a buy-sider, so I'm kind of like a troglodyte walking into these buy-side meetings as the new sell-side strategist. And uh, I, I just did. It didn't work for for. You know, I was a buy sider my first fifteen years in this business. You got to figure that out, right? I think yeah. it, I think it matters. Another thing. I we, was a bottom up, you know, stock picking buy sider, and I was always more fascinated by the top down. Um, I so when when the opportunity presented itself at Schwab nearly twenty some odd years ago, I, I said yes, please let me do top down. And, and it helped having both experiences, you know, being just on, I think it does. on one yeah. side. I mean, uh, that's, that's our bias and that's our experience. Um, but away from the gel, which is a bad joke, the, um, you, you, the, the, the volatility of inflation and the volatility of the bond market and the volatility of everything, is it not perpetuated by the old wall, as I affectionately call them, begging the Fed to be their former Fed? By definition, well, uh, you're going think, to, as soon as you take out a rate hike and take and oil rips 20%, and now the inflation number starts going up, you do perpetuate it by constantly having this. You, you do, but I think not to the degree that existed uh, before this current era. I, I think the Fed put, and what I mean by that is, ultimately, the, the in, either in response to some sort of you know crisis, something breaking, or just a much weaker economy, that the default switch will go back to the ZERP environment and, and NERP in the case of global central banks. I think that is the ship that has sailed. I think that's yeah. the put that has been put to bed. And I think every central bank, uh, probably with, with no or few exceptions, looks back on the experiment with, with ZERP or NERP and says, you know what, there were probably more negative consequences associated with that than positive consequences, both at the micro level of the lack of price discovery and the support for zombie companies to the more uh, macro level, pushing people out the risk spectrum that were income oriented. So 
Uh, yeah, I, I think that the Fed will pull the lever again and cut rates when when it, it's time or maybe when it's later than they should or sooner than they should. But I don't think that we're going back to uh, anything resembling the kind of ZERP environment that we had with us for a good chunk of the time from the global financial crisis on. Yeah, any um, I mean, Powell's actually been explicit about this and he has. If you listen to them, uh, you know, God forbid anybody did, they wouldn't have been in a 60-40 <laughs> portfolio or been long of duration this whole time. Just listen to them. I mean, and most importantly, listen to the to the to the bond market signal. I mean, every week my my bond yields, at, whether it be on the short end or the long end, are signaling higher lows and higher highs. Like you cannot even get the ten-year below 450 anymore, and the prior cycle high was four and a quarter. So you know that speaks to your point here that structurally it's not. It's, it's not your old wall cowbell. I mean, you're just, and if you do that, right. if, if we're back in our buy side seats, I, I trade my book actively, as most people know. I mean, if, if I were in the club or in the elite club and I got to know when they said they're going to be data dependent, but they're not, you know, I would, what would be the first thing I would do? I would go buy the living crap out of crude oil futures. I mean, that's, that's where the juice is. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe there's some juice over here in what everybody owns, but. That's, that's not what everybody owned in the summer of 2023. And, and the market's very good at reflating asset prices if they get even a little bit of cowbell. So that's what I meant by, like, I think the vol is in people begging for the same question. I mean, yesterday, I think, I mean, it was kind of crazy. I mean, the Fed, Dallas Fed, who listens to the Dallas Fed? But she says something about, hey, maybe the bond market's doing the work for us. I mean, yeah, uh, but that's not the way you wanted it to go. <laughs> It's just, it's an, it's an interesting thing, I think, to watch. Um, slide 62, I want to ask you about this, guys, in, in my deck. We call it going from stag-tember to shocktober. Because, of course, uh, a 40% rip in, in oil uh, and a reacceleration in even headline inflation, which is already re- a reported reality, is, is stag-tember's news. But shocktober, look at this list, Lizanne. Now, that's not, again, that's not like some presidential cycle or seasonality list. That list is a gong show of items that are real items that are part of your prior GDP, non, non-recession, soft landing, et cetera, et cetera, that are all reversing. What, what do you think about that? Well, wouldn't you add um, Hamas-Israel war? Yeah, the list keeps getting the, longer every time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and obviously that has a feeder into uh, just general uncertainty, but uh, um, oil prices uh, as well. I, I think... You know, it, it it brings back the whole long and variable lags. And I, I, I've i been saying, I we're just not past the expiration date on um, the, the hits that come at different times. And there might be offsetting circumstances, like I already talked about with regard to things like why mortgage rates maybe haven't hit to the same degree they have in the past because people have more people have locked in fixed rate mortgages and therefore the 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 effective mortgage rate on average is about half of where it is and some companies took advantage and and short up uh, balance sheets but i still think the there's still a coming home to roost um uh environment here as it relates to weaker companies, the zombie companies. It's starting on the consumer side of things, admittedly down the the income spectrum into, you know, subprime, where you're looking at, at delinquencies or uh, lateness on auto loans or mortgage loans. And, and eventually it, it, it starts to creep up. We got support for all of those concerns 
with the NFIB data that came out today, and you've seen a, a deterioration in confidence, and you've got inflation now back up to be tied as the number one concern with um, you know, concerns about sort of labor broadly. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think that student loan payments that you uh, point out and, you know, there's always a lot of debate about this sort of excess savings and with the with the, the broad benchmark revisions that we just got to GDP and its component parts, you did see an upward revision to excess savings. But it's still coming down. Maybe maybe you have a, another quarter of some semblance of, of cushion. But um, the last thing I'd say is we, we think of a lot of this, just the, the, the inner workings of the economy or even inflation as very kind of quantifiable. They're metric driven. But um, animal spirits and, and psychology doesn't just drive <laughs> markets. It drives inflation. It drives the economy. And um, that is the the thing that I think could could be one of the things that at breaks is sort of the, the the confidence part of this that feeds its way into again not just markets but inflation has a lot that's psychological about it um, and the economy has a lot about it that's psychological. Yeah, I mean if you if you tell go, go to go to Stu Leonard's which you you used to live. Uh, around here. You go to Stu Leonard's on Saturday morning and go up to a mom with her three kids or a dad, in my case, with my four, and just hold up a sign saying there's no inflation. Disinflation is here. Like, I mean, it, it, it's, it's so ridiculous. And, and, and obviously, the consumer confidence rollover was almost right on the screws with what happened in oil prices. So that's a really good point that I infrequently hear. Um, you know, Not only that, but everybody's inflation is is different. You know, the, yeah. the this focus that we all have on some, you know, either PCE or CPI, and if it's trending down, it's a good thing. But yeah, you know, talk, talk to the the average consumer um, and people who, you know, eat food and drive cars, and <laughs> <laughs> they they it. they feel it. Yeah, I mean, and looking at that list that I'm talking about, Shocktober, that's taking away a lot of the benefits that people had post-pandemic that they needed, right? And we're talking about SNAP benefits. We're talking about even these ERC payments, which have blown up into a big topic, obviously. There are a lot of things uh, there that, that people needed to make ends meet. Um, questions in the queue. If you have questions for Lizanne, uh, I got about five minutes left here. And the first one, not surprisingly, is about the other side, or the highest rated question, Lizanne, is about the other side of that. People that are permables want and need to believe that we're just going to have a great end of the year. And so this question, you know, not to pick on that narrative, but it's right on the screws. People want to believe that and make it that simple. So that's the question. Good, mo- good morning, Lizanne. Uh, notwithstanding the negative economic outlook, notwithstanding anything Keith and Lizanne just talked about um, for the first half of next year, he actually says as well, I'd like to hear your thoughts on whether stocks can have a reasonable uh, chance to finish strong anyway. Sure they can. Yeah. <laughs> Of course they can, <laughs> you know, if only because of the whole, you know, bring out the old, 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 old adage of, you know, wall of worry. Um, but that that absolutely can happen. And, and you know, triggers could be um, uh, another better than expected um, earnings season. You, you've had a bit of the washout in, in breath conditions that that tends to bring dip buyers in. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm never surprised by any move on the part <laughs> of the, the market. Um, but I, I think there are there are still a lot of risks um, out there, and I think there's a way there's ways to navigate through those risks, versus, you know, get in, get out. 
it's probably the question that drives me most crazy that I often get from kind of, you know, traditional financial media, uh, especially during maybe a more tumultuous, you know, week or month or day in the in the market, you know, the natural questions, okay, Lizanne, what are you telling your clients to do get in or get out? And I always think, boy, what a dumb question. (laughs) Um, Neither get in nor get out is an investing strategy. Um, That's just gambling on two moments in time. And that's not that's not what investing investing should be a disciplined process over time. And to be successful, it doesn't require that you know exactly when the bottom is or the the top and you you have an explanation for a rally that doesn't seem to have backing by fundamentals or vice versa, a market that goes down even though the fundamentals seem uh, terrific. So, uh, you know, back to the, the honest answer, yeah, the market could go up into your end, sure, why not? Yeah, I mean, it's just like, yeah, you can hit hit on black in a casino, too. I mean, like you said, it's gambling. I, I, that was one of the best answers I've heard from you, and for, for a lot of people, because, you know, it's human nature to want the simple answer, and we have, we have a nonlinear system, a chaotic system. You know, that is what nature is. This is not new, um, and it's just not that easy. I mean, just not even remotely close. But, you know, the one thing that's been 100% certain, um, and it's only happened at least while we've both been in this business together in the last quarter century, there's only been two, you know, two recessions that we've, three if you include the pandemic, but the two broadline recessions that we entered, once you actually get into the recession, then that is not a positive outcome for your stocks. I mean, that's, and, and, and I guess that's my last question for you. I mean, I could show like on a slide 17, guys, like we have us entering, this year, there was no recession. But we well, have the recession we, we, started. There's no, been no yeah. declared recession. You know, if right. if the data that the NBER tracks gets progressively worse from here, it's not out of the question that when they very late in the game announce a recession and then backdate its start point that we might find out it was already underway. I'm not saying that's my thesis. That's just the nature of what the NBER looks at. The fact that when they finally see the sort of whites of the recession's eye, and then they go to through the process of, okay, when did it start by month? They go back to the peak in the data, which is why, you yep. know, my other thing I always say as it relates to economic data, it's human nature to use your term to look at economic data and think good versus bad or strong versus weak, but it's better or worse that matters more than good or bad. Yeah. And it's it's that rate of change, it's inflection points. And plus the fact that we've had segments of the economy, I, I get a lot of criticism for using rolling recession uh, you know, come up with a, a better term for it. I don't care. <laughs> but we've had pockets of the economy, housing, housing related yeah. goods, manufacturing that have gone into recessions. We've just had the offsetting later strength on the services side. That's the nature of the pandemic. We had the goods pop initially and then the goods recession. Now we've had the services pop. And, you know, to me, best case scenario is not so much soft landing as we've had hard landings in those areas. It's just that if and when services gets hit, which, you know, probably hits the labor market, that you've got offsetting stability in areas that have already had uh, their their recessions. Yeah, I mean, a hard landing, you could find that in your account if you've been long like real estate stocks, you know, from from the cycle peak, they're down 35 percent. It's worse than the Russell, which is hard to do. I mean, that's an important answer as well. Uh, It was actually the guys I was showing the wrong slide there, slide 19. Um, The it's it's almost I hear you on on looking backwards it'll all become crystal clear but in in in, in our nowcasts we actually have us entering the recession now right so you're going to get those numbers 
like to your point, you're not going to the, the traditional economist or the somebody at the Fed will be the last person to figure it out. But I mean, you're entering it according to us now, and it'll be blazingly obvious to the Fed, you know, by the middle of next year because those are three sequentials in a row. They're not, you know, that's not that's not a something that if that ends up being right, Lizanne, that would be the equivalent of like, even in 2007. Like when I, I was early and wrong, I got fired in November of 07. GDP in the third quarter of 07 had a two in front of it. And obviously, I built Hedgeye on the back of staying with that process and call on rate of change terms. And pre-revisions, payrolls looked great. Yeah. Well, they always do at the end, right? Yeah. And it's the last thing that looks good. Um, So I guess- And keep in mind that the NBER didn't say it's a recession until December of 08, at which point they (laughs) said, oh, and by the way, it started a year ago. Yes. At which point, I think at that point, everyone was like, well, duh, but that's- that's also what I tell people, like, there's no recession. Well, just because it's not declared by the NDER, keep in mind that the average lag for them in dating the start of recessions is seven months. By the way, it's 15 months at the back end um, between when they've said, OK, recession's over, it ended. You know, the average look back is 15 uh, months. So, man, I, I certainly if you're if you're trying to time the market, don't use NDER declaration dates as some <laughs> trigger. <laughs> No, use Lizanne. She tweets every single day. We we uh, we have to. You do. You do an awesome job. I know that. Thank I know you. that you're you're proud of that. It's like it's going to be your legacy. You know, you get up in the morning and you grind and you give people like real rate of change data, real perspective. There's very. I mean, I don't think I've ever read anything that's politically charging. It certainly doesn't trigger me. I I stay yeah. I stay away from that. And I also have to uh, do a shout out to my research associate Kevin Gordon, who is who's my, you know, chart maven. So uh, I give him a tremendous amount of credit for the rapid fire visuals that I'm able to put out there on X, formerly known as Twitter. Yeah, that's, that's a, I mean, it's real, it's a real, like, you're one of my core, I have my conscious stream, to be clear, but, uh, which is the, literally, if you watch Lizanne's tweets and you watch the conscious stream of, you know, of the pump from, from, from Wall Street, you're going to see very different things in the morning. It's an interesting exercise that you should all, <laughs> Uh, engaging, but uh, you're 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 always evolving, but you're always the same in terms of being a, a great great person for uh, the you. kickoff of our investing summit. And I appreciate you, you making Thanks, the Keith. time. My pleasure. Nice to be here. She is Liz Ann Saunders. There's only one. And up next, it's going to be Jim Bianco. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal tax accounting or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye is not responsible for errors and accuracies or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the contents. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws as intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.